Previously on American Jihadi. It was definitely written by him. It's an autobiography. Deborah, would you mind reading this out loud? Read this out loud? What I would like, though, is to have a three-day visit to see my mom, my dad, and my sister. I always think about how my mom and dad used to care so much. Yes, I sat down with his parents this morning, and... uh, I saw the highlight of my mom reading, and I couldn't stop crying for a good five minutes. He did very well, as a matter of fact, and I was happy with it all. When I was showing Omar's autobiography to his parents in Alabama, I realized I'd missed something about the cover. It was a shot of the pier near his home that jutted out into Mobile Bay. I knew that image. That's because it came from the documentary I had made about him years before. He had screen-grabbed it to use for his own book. My first reaction was to feel like it was just one more way Omar was pulling me into his story. But also that pier, that was his hometown, where he grew up. And that was the funny thing about his autobiography. For all his insistence that the book was an expose of the frictions within Al-Shabaab, Omar spent a lot of time describing his life as a kid in Alabama. This is my producer Brent reading from the autobiography. I was brought up like most of the privileged children in America. My parents cared about me and my sister and tried to raise us the best they could. Since my mother was working... I couldn't tell if he included as much detail as he did because he was narcissistic and just assumed everything about him would be interesting. There was a little girl who was a bit of a tomboy who gave me a refrigerator magnet in the shape of Wisconsin. Or if he was just nostalgic for home. She told me one time that if I do not eat I used the to bring whistles seeds of and those toys to the playground beans. by smuggling them she will not be my friend. most of the time in my pocket. I told her, so what? Whatever it was, he clearly had this hope that his life story would just make sense. Like, if he got it right, people couldn't help but understand how all the choices he had made were basically the right ones. I was the first person in the West Omar had had extended communication with in years. And in his messages, it would sometimes seem like he was trying to figure out how he was coming across to me. Do you think I'm some wicked, bloodthirsty madman? Or some naive, lost little boy? I honestly didn't know. But at least, it was the right question to ask. I'm Christoph Putzel. This is American Jihadi. Episode 3, Origin Story. I had never entirely been able to get my head around the stories Omar told about himself in his autobiography. So this spring, as I was making this podcast, I returned to Daphne, Alabama to interview the people who could best help me make sense of those stories. My name is Shafiq Hamami. I'm the father of Omar Hamami. I'm Deborah Hamami. I'm Omar's mother. I'm from Perdido, Alabama. It's a little country town. I was born in Damascus, Syria. I lived all my life as a city boy, as they call it here. The reader should realize that this is a very strange combination. An Arab from Syria marries a little southern belle from Alabama. This is an important detail in understanding who I am. Told this way, Omar's story starts one night in Damascus in 1962, where Shafiq is still a boy listening to Voice of America on the radio. We choose to go to the moon. I was so young. I was so drawn to the American, everything American. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. 
not because they are easy, but because they are hard. I was so inspired by it. I said, these people can go to the moon. So where else to go but the United States? My father left for America at a young age, still in his late teens, with only a bit of money in his pocket. He was accepted into the University of South Alabama, so he began working long and hard jobs to provide for his education. A few miles down the road from where Shafiq was going to college, Deborah was a senior in high school. I actually met Shafiq on a blind date. He was like 5'9", had uh, real black curly hair, very slim. And I thought, wow, this guy's so cute. When I first came here, I was, I wouldn't say 100% practitioner of Islam. I was kind of like halfway, mainly because I was teenager. Going to parties and going to the beach and, and do things like that, those first couple of years, they were kind of wild. I guess I was always attracted to the dark-skinned, handsome-looking Arab guy. You know, when he spoke the accent and everything, I was like, hmm. She didn't drink, didn't smoke, so I felt like she was a little bit more closer to my values than others. And then she was beautiful as well. Deborah knew nothing about Islam. But it didn't seem so incompatible with the Southern Baptist faith she'd grown up with. They believed in God, and they believed in Moses and Abraham and a lot of the prophets and stuff that we believed in. So really, at that point, I was like, well, I guess he just believes basically a lot of, you know, what I do. Deborah and Shafiq dated for four years before getting married. We had the Christian ceremony first. And then we went to the hall and had the Muslim ceremony. They didn't have a lot of money then. We actually didn't have real glasses. We had styrofoam cups. Now, Shafiq did buy me a beautiful bouquet. He did good. Shafiq and Deborah agreed that they would never ask each other to convert. However differently they understood the world, they thought their love would be enough to get them through whatever came. They had their first child in 1981. My name is Dina, and I am Omar's sister. Then, three years later, Omar. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. How'd your party go, Omar? Was it pretty fun? In his autobiography, Omar describes himself as a kid as a kind of charming troublemaker. I used to talk a lot, which hasn't changed. So my teacher, Ms. Dumas, decided that I should be isolated. All the kids used to play games, and I was at a table by myself with a puzzle. I still used to talk to the other kids when the teacher wasn't looking, though. I'm our crush. I'll get where I can see y'all. God, this snow is deep. Hey, just think you you play tag team. Omar also says he was pretty smart. I was the best in class in reading, math, and art, and so forth. And that continued through second grade as well. He was always especially sensitive to how he was being treated. You couldn't, like, tease him because he would get, like, mad easily. Like, he would get, like, I don't know, like, his feelings hurt, but it would be like he would act on it out of anger. He had to have that recognition that he excelled above everybody. And if you let him do that, you had him. But 
If you didn't have him, he would let you know. He would get in trouble in school. Like, he would be bored and act out. The reason I talk in class and make people laugh while they should be doing their work is that I'm always the first one done with the work. It's like he would just finish his work. And the other poor kids are sitting there struggling. So he got really angry one day. So he took a desk and just threw it by the door. Omar was easily frustrated and, in his mind, misunderstood. He got a bit of a reputation with his teachers, a smart kid who could sometimes be a pain in the ass. When it came time to assign parts for the skits in his elementary school recital, he was given a role that I have a hard time believing was entirely accidental. In a video that Shafiq shot on his camcorder, Omar hides on stage in a cardboard box because a girl has called him a monster. There's a creepy resonance that comes from watching the video today, knowing who the nine-year-old boy would grow up to be. Omar, please come out. Are you sure I'm not a monster? I'm sure. All right, here I come. Roar! Knowing how central the question of whether Omar was or was not a monster would become. Did you know that friendship is important to our health and happiness? And sometimes friendship takes long time to grow. From the beginning, Deborah and Shafiq had a plan for how their different religions could coexist within their marriage. But as the years passed, it gradually became clear that their plan was easier to agree on than to carry out. We had spoken before we got married. He was like, the kids will be Muslim. But you know, at that time, like, when you love someone and you marry somebody, it's like, in your mind, like, mm, that's not a big deal. Does it matter? And I don't really think that ever registered in my mind until we did have children. My mom would take us to church, but my dad didn't know. <laughs> I just felt like if they weren't exposed to my religion, that they might eventually not have a chance, you know, to be exposed. So every Sunday morning, Deborah, Dina, and Omar would leave Shafiq at the house and go for a drive. And she used to take the children and go to her mom. We went to my grandmother's house every Sunday, and so we would go to church there. It would be like, don't tell dad. Don't tell dad, don't tell dad. Omar loved church. I was saved, as the Christians would have us believe, and baptized in the Perdido Baptist Church. I used to tell my grandmother that I'm going to become a doctor so I can do missionary work. Like everywhere else, he wanted to excel. I was the best student in Bible school. I memorized the names of the books of the Bible and all the little verses that are used for Christian creed. Deborah did what she could to keep Shafiq in the dark about what they were doing. Before we got home or something, I'd be like, oh, remember when we went to the beach last week? Or, you know, we went to the circus. Remember all the animals and everything we saw? But we would come home like, singing Jesus Loves Me or something. 
Once I came home with a little wall decoration that had some Bible verse or something on it. My father asked me, where did you get this? And I lied. From a church parade that came in front of our house. That was the best I could come up with. The secret trips to church went on for years. I knew I shouldn't do it. But in my heart, I was like, I have to. And I knew eventually it would come to a head. But I thought, until then, we'll keep going. Then one Sunday, while Deborah and the kids were having lunch with the rest of the congregation, the church got a surprise visit. And I look out and I said, oh my gosh, Shafiq is here. I didn't mind, you know, for Deborah to go to church because I promised her I'm not, I'm not going to interfere with her faith. But the children were redlined to me, and she knew it. So I didn't make a scene. I just said, go with your dad. Your dad wants you to go with him. I'll see you tonight. She knew I wouldn't approve that, but she was doing it behind my back. I was very much betrayed in that situation. In Omar's telling, this is the moment a deep divide appeared within his family. He sat us down and asked us why we were going to church. I began to cry and I told him openly that I am a Christian. I think that struck him deeply. That caused him to think a lot about his life and the reason for life. He began thinking that his children are going to hell if they don't become Muslim. Despite Shafiq's agreement with Deborah about the kids being raised Muslim, before this moment, he had never pushed Omar and Dina very hard about Islam. But now he was determined to make a change. Now I have to put it in high gear and make sure that they, they understand things quickly. Because I felt like it's slipping away from me. Shafiq started taking the kids to a mosque in Mobile and signed them up for Arabic classes so they could read the Quran. I would come home and he would just sit down with me and have long talks about what I was doing wrong and what I should be doing right and what Islam teaches about certain things and make me listen to different, like, recordings. He thought that he would just put me in that school and I would automatically just become Muslim. The idea wasn't so bad except for the fact that they placed me in a class of seven-year-olds. That too wasn't so bad except for the fact that those seven-year-olds knew more than me about Islam and the Arabic language. That was not a common experience in my life. I was the one who was the best of the class and the most intelligent. How could I be showed up by some little kids? The rules for how Dina and Omar were supposed to behave also started to change, for Dina in particular. I was 12 or 13, and we would go to the public pool, but I would have to swim in, like, clothes. She wants to play soccer, play, uh, wear shorts and stuff like that. That's not Islamic. You know, you, you want to play soccer, I don't mind, but you, you wear long pants. And it just felt like my dad was very strict and, like, different, and he didn't understand. But, I mean, I think in his own way, like, he was trying to protect us. It was just, like, different than what he knew. She wasn't allowed to wear makeup or go on dates. I didn't want her to be raised in a way that she would be inclined to go to, you know, drinking parties and boys and all this, which is normal here. It's not normal for me. It's immoral and it's a path to hell. 
What was maybe hardest for Dina in all of this was knowing that while Shafiq was busy pushing all these beliefs on his kids, Deborah, a Southern Baptist, believed something else entirely. Both of my parents were kind of like, we're right, and if you don't do this, you're going to hell, basically. And I was kind of like, well, you guys both can't be right, or you guys, maybe you're both wrong. Finally, Dina had had enough. I moved out a few days after my 16th birthday. Maybe we were both kind of pulling at both ends. I was pushing them, I think, maybe to be Baptist, and then Shafig was pushing them the other way. And I really didn't think about it until they got older. And, you know, Omar made the decision to change. Omar went in the opposite direction from his sister. The inquisitive Omar was asking questions. He started struggling internally by himself because he sees when I take him to the mosque what they say on Friday and what he learned in the church. He started to see a big difference in there. It was somewhere around that time that I laid in my bed before sleeping one night and I decided to pray. That was not strange because as a Christian, I used to pray before sleeping on many occasions. But this time it was different. Instead of saying, in Jesus' name, I pray, amen, I decided to call upon God alone. I decided that was the only way to find out the truth of the matter. I said, oh God, please guide me to the correct religion from these two religions. He started going to to the mosque more with me. You know, he wants to learn more about Islam to compare to what he learned in the church. And that solidified his thinking into Islamic teaching. I feel like that conversion probably strengthened their relationship and probably he felt like my dad would be proud of me. Before his conversion, Omar had been one of the most popular kids in school. He had a girlfriend, he was his sophomore class president, but he began to consciously and publicly reject all of that. For Omar, the intensity of his desire to be on this new spiritual path outweighed whatever he might have been giving up. And there was some part of him that relished the challenge of declaring himself a Muslim in his small Christian southern town. One day, Omar decided that he would stop praying in private and instead pray next to his high school's flagpole in full view of all his classmates. Now was the test. I'd have to pray in front of all my friends despite being the only Muslim in a southern suburban town. My friends laughed at me, but I didn't care. Those friends only cared about me so long as I was in their face making them laugh. They also only cared about me so long as I was a Christian. I'm sure he was outcasted. I mean, he goes from being this popular kid to being completely different from probably anyone in Daphne. But for a skinny blonde freshman named Bernie, that made Omar more, not less approachable. I spoke with him on the pier where he and Omar used to go fishing. I was the, the the weird, nerdy, kind of reserved kid that nobody wanted to talk to either, so I mean, it was perfect for me. One day, I, I went up to him, and uh, I was like, so I turned, I heard that you're uh, Islamic now, and he's like, yeah, I'm a Muslim now. I was like, okay, so what's all that about? And then I said, Bernie was impressed by Omar's willingness to openly declare his new identity, 
despite the ridicule of his classmates. I think it was just his way of sh saying, you know, like, I'm not going to bow down and do whatever you want me to. I'm going to do what I think is right, and that's the way that I'm going to do things. And if you have a problem with that, then I don't care. And I'm going to put it in your face, and I'm not going to be quiet about it. Bernie had been struggling at home and at school, so Omar started to teach him about what he had found in Islam, the pleasing order it gave to his life, the rules that outlined the correct way to pray and eat and interact with the opposite sex, rules that Omar had set out to prove his mastery at, the same way he had in Bible study at his mother's church. I would go to uh, his house, you know, and we would, we would read a little bit, you know, and like, uh, you know, he, he was praying five times a day with his dad and stuff like that. He's like, uh, you know, you, you want me to show you how to pray? And it's like, okay, so learn how to do that. It answered just a lot of questions that I had, and it, it brought a lot of, I guess, balance that I probably needed in my life at the time. Omar and Bernie worked together at Walmart, where they both insisted on wearing the tunic and prayer cap of devout Muslims, and where they were out their welcome as employees by refusing to work in the sections of the store that sold pork or alcohol or women's underwear. In the summer, Omar spent time with his father's family in Syria. By then, he had become so dogmatic about the rules of Islam that these serious practicing Muslims were alarmed. I had become more religious than my family over there. They started telling me to shave my beard and not to wear Islamic clothing. I wasn't an angel at that time either, but I was religious enough to make them scared. Back home in Alabama, Omar got in a series of arguments with his father about the right way to practice their faith. My dad wanted to take a family picture. There's nothing wrong with that ordinarily, but many of the scholars hold the opinion that it is not Islamically legal to take pictures without a good reason. I told him that I respect his opinion, but I do not want to take the picture. My dad wasn't sold. He just refused. I couldn't get him to take any pictures. We had a big fight about it. I was told to leave the house. He told me, you're not going to sit here in my house wasting your time and wasting your life. You want to do that, you do it somewhere else. You just have to leave. It was loving, you know, advice, trying to bring him back to reality. And so Omar goes in there and gets his stuff and just leaves. And I was just like, oh, my gosh, here we go. I was hoping that that would be a deterrent for him not to leave, that he would come to his senses and, you know, change his way. Not long after Omar moved out, he got news that his friend Bernie had met a Somali-Canadian woman and was moving to Toronto to marry her. Omar liked the idea of living in a city with a real Muslim community. He moved to Toronto himself, where he spent day after day visiting all the city's mosques and religious bookstores, and where he married the sister of Bernie's wife. Toronto, for Omar, was just a jumping-off point. I was happy for quite a while until I realized that even this is not enough. Obviously, it was never a pure Islamic society by any stretch of the imagination but it served as a temporary haven for me while I digested new information and formed new plans for my future. Omar and Bernie set their sights on the Middle East, specifically Alexandria, Egypt, where Omar hoped to be admitted at one of the world's most prestigious Islamic universities. He was just, like, grasping at straws a little bit. So, I mean, he was always, like, a bit of a dreamer. In the end, Omar's plan didn't work. He wasn't accepted at the university. The two couples crammed themselves into a broken-down apartment far from Alexandria's city center and tried to make ends meet. Bernie hated it, but Omar had a very different reaction. That was the thing about Omar. If you ever look at him, this is the one thing that's, like, the craziest personality trait that I've never seen in anybody else is that, like, he, like, thrived in, 
you know, minimal living conditions, you know, he was like a really ascetic type of guy. And it's like the crappier, the better almost, you know, like the worse off living conditions, the better. After a few months, Bernie and his wife returned to Canada. Meanwhile, Omar's wife gave birth to a daughter. Omar had decided he was going to stay. I don't know if he, like, would have felt defeated because this was, like, such a big thing that they had maybe glamorized and it wasn't what he thought, but he didn't want to, like, turn back. I think he was determined to try to make it work. He wasn't ready to give up on his dream. By then, though, Omar's dream had changed. Since he hadn't been accepted to study formally in Egypt, he had taken to haunting internet cafes, spending hours on Islamic message boards, and reading the news about what was happening in nearby Somalia. Also been displaced since Ethiopia sent 15,000 troops into Somalia in order to fight the Union of Islamic Courts. Even after Bernie had left Egypt, he followed Omar's posts on online message boards. It became clear that Omar had developed a very particular interpretation of jihad, he argued that Muslims had a religious duty to defend Islamic governments from attack, like the Islamic government in Somalia. Bernie didn't agree with all of Omar's conclusions, but he understood his logic. No rational, practicing, religious Muslim that is talking to you honestly is ever going to tell you that, like, if they were right next to Somalia, they weren't at least a little tempted to go fight for these people. Because it was jihad. That's it. There's very few instances where there's like clean-cut jihad, you know? There's non-Muslims attacking a Muslim country. They're defending themselves on basis of their health, their wealth, their families, their religion. This is one of them. Omar left his wife and newborn daughter in Egypt and disappeared into Somalia. That was 2006. The next time anyone in his family would see him was the fall of 2007 when he showed up on TV as the spokesman for Al-Shabaab. All Muslims of America, take into deep consideration the example of Somalia. After 15 years of chaos... So then I guess my mind was like all over the place. Like, what is he doing? Like, is he... Maybe it's just for show. Like, maybe it's for recruitment, for, you know... Or, like... Is he killing people? Is he... I didn't really know what was going on. I just knew that that was my brother on TV. Omar began sending emails to Dina anonymously, trying to help her understand the choices he had made. In his messages, he was a funny mix of true believer and little brother. I wonder what the hell the world thinks about me sometimes. It's really strange when you realize that 99% of the world thinks you're crazy and you think that 99% of the world is crazier. We'll all figure it out one day. We needed someone to volunteer to do the scouting and to alert us of the enemy entering into the commune. Dina, I really want you to look into what's going on here and follow the news. It's the biggest evidence that this world is just against this religion. The people who stand up for their lives and honors are considered evildoers. It's insane. So this is the... Um the promise of Al-Mansur, the official spokesman of Harish Shabab Mujahideen, that we're going to besiege Beidoa from all angles. I want you to look deeper into this religion because it's possible we will never meet again in this life. And I want you to be my neighbor in the next.
I pray for you and mom all the time. I know you guys have good hearts, and I'm just waiting for the day when God will guide you. <sighs> American Jihadi is produced by Endeavor Audio and 222 Productions. It's hosted and executive produced by me, Christoph Putzel, of Hidden Door Media. Our producers are Julia Botero and Zach Hirsch, with help from Pallavi Katamasu and Ashley Cleek. Our senior producer is Brent Renault. Our editor is Keith Romer. Our managing producer is Samantha Allison. This episode was mixed by Hannes Brown with sound design by Hannes Brown and Zach Hirsch. Business affairs, Shoshana Jakobov. Fact-checking by Laura Bullard. Executive producers include Adam Levine, Josh Gummersall, and Adam Harrison of 222 Productions, Dave Easton of Endeavor Audio, and Jonathan Hirsch of Neon Hum Media. Coming up on American Jihadi. These guys, what they do to people, they chop off heads, they blow up innocent people in coffee places and hotels and weddings. So the only reason we're staying here away from our families, away from the cities, ice, candy bars, all these other things, is because we're waiting to meet with the enemy. So, inshallah... Poor black African people. That's who they were killing every day. Every one of these days is better than the dunya and everything. Have you killed anyone? If so, how many people and how? Sounds like that question you're supposed to ask your cellmate, doesn't it? 